Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It's my goal to satiate your appetite. So, this is where you'll find nationally recognized celebrity chefs food artisans, authors, experts, and visionaries who love food, travel, and living the best life. And every topic is on the table with recipe inspiration, party planning, wine pairings, cooking techniques, and much more shared all throughout the hour. I hope to make food come alive in multiple ways every Sunday for you, from dinner brainstorms to the current climate of the wide world of food. We celebrate all things culinary and their ability to feed the soul. So get comfortable and listen in because we're dishing on everything from grilling to smoking to better barbecue and Italian-inspired canning, mostardas, and giardiniera this hour. You can always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. And I hope you'll follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen for daily inspiration. And seeing that summer is in full swing now, there are so many grand foods to savor this season. Fresh sweet berries from the farmer's market, picnics by the beach, ice cream desserts, and of course, the beauty of a killer cocktail, right? Summer screams for cool drinks and backyard barbecues. It's a perfect pairing, really. And there's a question out there, of course, as to how you can elevate your seasonal cocktails. For me, it's all about staying cool. Now, for years, leading bars have taken great pride in maintaining a cutting-edge cocktail program. But in the past few years, ice has become the hot topic, since everyone's looking at new ways to impress when it comes to keeping your drinks cool. So, don't sweat those rising temperatures. Just drop one of my ice cubes infused with fruits or veggies or herbs into a tall glass of water, and you can watch the heat melt away. Better yet, make your own seasonal cocktails come alive by creating flavor-infused ice cubes yourself. I guarantee, by the way, that you will have your guests saying, wow, so how do you do it? This is what I like to say will make you a culinary hero. You can pack leaves of fresh mint into oversized ice cube trays and fill them with water and then freeze them. Think about the mojitos those will make, right? I happen to love how the icy cold hint of mint unravels into a drink with each sip as the ice cubes dissolve and disperse. And you can actually infuse cubes with lots of edibles, herbs, edible flowers, even fruit. Now, when it comes to an ice cube tray, we've come far from the plastic standard. And the silicone ice molds today really do give you um, a better handle at making sure that the ice forms beautifully and that your infusions or the aromatics, the herbs, the fruit, or otherwise that you're using become suspended within the cube itself. So it's an inexpensive investment to purchase some silicone ice trays, and I guarantee you that your ice cubes will be more brilliant because of it. 
from a, a tall pitcher of lemonade to a fresh glass of water with that thin slice of lemon in the ice cube just to freshen up the taste, you'll see a world of difference. And it, again, is so ultra impressive. Now, for cocktail inspiration... I happen to be a vodka girl. So my new summer drink is what I call a vodka nut. It's a vodka with coconut water ice cubes. And I like to use those little coquito nuts as the garnish. You could call it a vodka nut or a vodka nut, but the vodka coconut combination is outrageous. So you make coconut water ice cubes using, of course, everyone's favorite uh, hot trend beverage, and that is coconut water, which they do say hydrates you better than any other liquid. And I make my coconut water ice cubes just by pouring the coconut water straight into the ice cube trays. Think about making sriracha ice cubes next time you put out a Bloody Mary bar. Oh, yes. The possibilities are really endless. And I put together some of my best suggestions based on inspiration from the trendiest bars across the U.S., So in Atlanta, one of the liveliest spots in the downtown Atlanta area is a bar called Alma Cocina. Um, They call it Alma Cocina because it's a a Latin-inspired culinary program. And they love at Alma Cocina to see how ice affects the flavor and the texture of their tequila. So they are making fresh pineapple ice cubes to infuse and slowly melt into a tequila, nice and cold, refreshing, and full of fabulous flavor. You got to love it, right? Now in New York City, jalapeno slices are infusing their flavor into ice cubes and watermelon juice is being added for a refreshing summertime sparkler at um, the Union Square Cafe, which I love as well. And I I love that combination too, I have to say. You've got um, gin and jalapeno and fresh watermelon juice. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Then topped with a little bit of bubbly so that you get the effervescence. What a crazy combination. And then in Sydney, Australia, the infused ice cube craze has no doubt uh, been found there. It has extended to the other side of the world. Um, One of Australia's hippest hotels, the QT Sydney, which I'm dying to go to has a barrel-aged bourbon program in their very stylish brasserie, and they are serving their bourbon with an orange twist and maple-infused ice cube. And that, to me, also sounds quite scrumptious. Now, don't forget, if you need a, a shortcut, let's say you forgot to make the infused ice cubes in time for the party, or uh, you just haven't gotten around to it yet, although I know you will, because it will make your summer truly spectacular. I wanted to give you a quick hack. I like to make what I call boozy ice pops. It's a great starter for a party and it's a great ending or dessert as well. And the shortcut here is that you buy fruit flavored popsicles just in the frozen food section of your supermarket and you pour the best cava or prosecco or, you know, good valued sparkling wine that you have into large wine glasses. And then you stick a fruit flavored popsicle already made for you into the glass. I will say 
the popsicle melts slowly into the sparkling wine and you can munch on the popsicle all the way through and it is pretty delicious. So it will too keep you cool and chilled. And that is today's conversation on Ice Ice Baby. Here's some other really interesting food news that I hope you can use. This summer, diners in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles will get their hands on a hamburger that has been five years in the making. No, really, it's supposed to be great. The burger looks, tastes, and smells like beef, except for it is entirely made from plants. It actually sizzles on the grill from what I've been told. It browns. It even oozes a little bit of fat when it cooks. It's the brainchild of former Stanford biochemist Patrick Brown and his research team at the Northern California-based company called Impossible Foods. Now, the startup's goal is, like many in Silicon Valley, to create a product that will change the world. So Impossible Foods has developed a burger that it says is less resource-intensive, healthier, and will eventually be cheaper to produce than red meat. Now, the Impossible Burger is more than just peas and carrots smashed together. It's actually pretty high-tech research. They analyze meat at a molecular level to determine what makes a burger taste, smell, and cook the way it does. So this Impossible Burger is still squishy while it's raw, and it firms up and browns on the grill. And it's really fascinating, actually. So look for an impossible burger at a restaurant or retail store near you. The company is actually partially funded by Bill Gates, and Google has a stake as well. And Google actually offered uh, $200 million for the company, and Mr. Brown refused the purchase. Uh, he did not sell. In fact, he bought a larger space, a 66,000 square foot manufacturing facility in Oakland so that he could ramp up production. And that means an impossible burger is coming to a bun near you really soon, in fact. And that's news that you can use, right? <laughs> and do not touch your dial, please, because there's lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. Grilling guru Stephen Raiklin is stuffing by, and he's smoking everything, by the way. He's sharing his new cookbook called Project Smoke. And as mentioned, we are preserving Italy with mustardos and oven-roasted tomatoes and beautiful grilled zucchini and olive oil. Yes, Domenica Marchetti, she puts it up Italian style. So stay tuned. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, heating it up every Sunday with grand guests and chef's tips to make your summer dishes come alive with flavor. 
We know him and love him, and I am delighted to have him back. Stephen Reichlin, America's James Beard Award-winning global grilling and smoking authority, and the author of a library of New York Times bestsellers, also the host of acclaimed PBS cooking shows. He has shaped the country's fixation with live fire cooking. And just in time to fire up your grill this season, Stephen is making the art of smoking accessible to all great home cooks. It is his eagerly anticipated first book devoted exclusively to the subject of smoke. It is called Project Smoke. It will be followed with a PBS series, in fact. And Stephen Reichlin is here to dish. I'm glad to have you back. Hi, Stephen. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay. Um, this passion of smoking of yours has been um, a, a long love affair, I know. But you traveled the world to experience smoke from so many different cultures and uh, culinary applications. And I, I would love to know about that journey. You know, whenever I write a new book, the first thing I do is pack a suitcase. Now, <laughs> for Project Smoke, that's cool. Uh, I toured the uh, UK. I toured Scandinavia. I visited southern Italy to learn how they smoke mozzarella, not oh. with wood, interestingly, but with hay. I saw that recipe. I can't wait to make that. It's really cool. And, you know, it's remarkable uh, because... Traditionally, you think of smoked foods as being a very long, slow, drawn-out process, but hay smoking actually happens in a matter of minutes. Okay, talk to us, if you would, because you don't have to have a smoker to smoke, right? And and we should get to that. You can smoke on your gas grill, but there are a lot of different types of things you can smoke with, different woods, different chips, different chunks. What are your favorites? So, uh, it's a very good question, you know, and... Uh, I guess I uh, I always say that smoking is easy, but it's not simple. And what I mean by that is the technique itself is very easy, but there are an enormous number of variables, beginning with the wood. So first of all, we need to talk with, about wood species. Yes. And, you know, you can smoke with apple or hickory or mm. cherry, mesquite. In fact, each has a slightly different flavored smoke, but those differences are quite subtle. And when you smoke with apple, it's not like you're going to taste the apple fruit or apple juice. Uh, the only wood that that is really, you know, you can really identify a mile away blindfolded is mesquite because it gives you a very heavy smoke flavor that's almost agreeably bitter. Mm. Now, in terms of the form the wood comes in, uh, you know, if you have a big offset barrel smoker, you'll burn logs. If you have a smaller water smoker or ceramic cooker, you're more likely to use wood chips or chunks for smoking. Okay. Uh, if you have a pellet smoker, you'll use these little tiny pellets of compressed hardwood sawdust. So lots of different forms. Species marry, matters less than how you use it. What's really important to remember is you want to dose the smoke slowly. Little by little, this is a slow and steady wins the race kind of process, right. not a all of a sudden smoking process. And it's a soaking process too, right? I've always been taught to soak wood chips or soak a plank or a board in advance of grilling. Well, interesting you should ask that. I do advocate soaking the chips because it slows down the rate of combustion, gives okay. you more even smoke. However, um, and I used to soak planks too, but I don't do that anymore. What I do is I really? char the plank over a hot fire to get the edges burning and actually put some colored char on the plank. Then when you put your camembert cheese or your mm. trout, <laughs> pardon me, on the plank, you will um, it, it, you get an extra extra flavor. 
if you're working on a cedar plank, you know, that singed, charred cedar flavor. Yes. It's just fantastic. Okay. And on a gas grill, I mm. would love some instruction, please. I, I happen to love the flavor of applewood smoked salmon, Stephen. I, there, okay. there might be nothing better. So what's the best process if I want to use my, you know, big, beautiful backyard barbecue? Well... Gas grills traditionally are the Achilles heel in smoking. They're not well suited <laughs> to smoking because there's such a big vent at the back to let out the excess heat. Right. But if you want to smoke on a gas grill, <coughs> one thing you can do is under the grate between the flavorizer bars, you can position chunks of hardwood. And oh, cool. those will smolder during the grilling process, give you a smoke flavor. Alternatively, you can fold wood chips. In this case, I wouldn't uh, soak them in an aluminum foil pouch, poke some holes in the top, place that on one of the burners under the grate. Okay. Um, that's called a smoker pouch. But really, if you want to get the full benefit of the wood smoke, invest in an inexpensive kettle grill or an inexpensive smoker and use that for smoking. Sure. Why does it taste so good, Stephen? I've always wondered. I mean, this concept of smoke has been around for so long, and we've seen it in a lot of forms. I mean, with the the wide, wonderful world of... uh, of gastronomy today. We see smoke under a glass dome from a a sprig of rosemary. And then we see, you know, smoked pastrami, like from Project Smoke, from your new book, which I really would love to try and attempt. And we know that that smoke is appealing to the palate. But what is it that makes the smoke taste so delicious? Well, you know, smoke is a very complex uh, substance. Uh, It's um, comprised of solids. It has liquids like tar. It has gases. Uh, and among those gases are flavor-producing compounds called phenols. Okay. And one example is vanillin, which gives you a vanilla-like sweetness. Right. Another is creosol, which is, gives you the sort of peaty flavor that you associate with scotch whiskey. Hmm. Uh, there are hundreds, perhaps even thousands of flavor-producing compounds in smoke. And uh, and so each of these contributes to the deliciousness of smoked foods. Mm, I, no doubt. I, there's something addictive about it to me. And you smoke... It really it, is. It really is, right? You smoke everything. I, congratulations. I love the book. I mean, you always put out an incredible manual, and it's incredible learning. But you smoke lemons and mayonnaise and cocktails, and I want to make a bacon bourbon apple crisp. You sure do. Oh, yeah, I do. When you do that, then you want to top it with the smoked ice cream, which may be the most surprising discovery in the book, but I've come up with a number of ways to smoke ice cream. Smoked ice cream, you've eaten it your whole life. When you taste smoked ice cream for the first time, it's like that moment in The Wizard of Oz that goes from black and white to uh, color. To color, right. For sure. Um, just give us a, a quick instruction. Let's say, um, let's say we want to smoke some lemons. We're putting seafood or shellfish on the grill for uh, the July 4th weekend. What's the best way to add a minimal amount of smoke to add that really big, bold flavor to a dish? Well, probably the easiest way to smoke a lemon is to get yourself something called a smoking gun, which is a handheld smoker, looks like a little pistol, You load it with hardwood sawdust and then fire the smoke out of rubber tube. And in that Mm -hmm. instance, I'd put the lemons in a bowl, cover with plastic, right, fill the bowl bowl with smoke, and you get a wonderful smoke flavor. 
Now, an alternatively, cool. uh, yes. what you can do with the lemons that's really great is just cut them in half, put them on a screaming hot grill, and caramelize the surface of the lemon. Yes. Char the lemon. Yes. And that will also give you a smoky flavor. Can't wait to go back to the site where I have been many a time, and we're looking forward to the new PBS series. So once again, congratulations. Thank you uh, for lessons for smoking novices or seasoned aficionados. We are all learning to be better grillers because of you. I appreciate it, Stephen. That is fantastic. Thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, Stephen Reichlin visited over six continents and 60 countries to research the flavors of smoked cuisine and everything you need to know about smoking vegetables and cocktails and even ice cream is in the new cookbook of the same name as the PBS Project. It is called Project Smoke. The book is a Available now for all great grill masters, so check it out and stay tuned. There is more to fire you up right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Satiating your appetite every Sunday. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. For Domenica Marchetti, picking her own hot and sweet peppers and canning her own rustic grape jam is more than just stocking a pantry. It's about keeping traditions alive. She's preserving Italy. The notion of preserving should not be limited to American jams and jellies. So if you want to master preserving an oil, making true mostardas, classic giardiniera, or of course the late summer tradition of putting up tomato sauce, then listen here. Domenica Marchetti is the author of six cookbooks on Italian cooking, and her new book release entitled Preserving Italy is getting rave reviews. I welcome you, Domenica. Thank you for being here to share your passion. Thank you for having me. Well, of course. You're a wonderful storyteller. The book is no doubt chock full of really delicious inspiration. I mean, I wanted to go and pull out all my canning jars and look to the garden and pull out the head of cauliflower I had and start cooking right away. Um, but you tell wonderful stories throughout the beginning of the book and woven into the recipes. So tell us about your Italian heritage and your mother's, or rather grandmother's, liquor-soaked cherries. Yes, those cherries were really the inspiration for the book. When mm. I was growing up, my grandmother, who was from the Abruzzo region, in Italy, which is kind of halfway across the boot from Rome. And it's a beautiful, um, you know, very kind of isolated area, but lots of wonderful things grow there, including sour cherries. Mm. And she used to put up sour cherries in alcohol. And she passed away when I was still a girl, and I always had the memory of those cherries. And Finally, I just decided I need to figure out how to make these. I, I wanted to learn how to make them. And, and so um, my mom helped me out a bit, and I just kind of did. I looked at old Italian cookbooks and interviewed people and finally came up with a recipe for sour cherries and alcohol mm. that um, 
I think she would really be proud of. Um, <laughs> I feel like they do her recipe justice. But as I was working on the recipe for these cherries, I started thinking about all of the other things that Italians put up. Um, you know, the giardiniera that you mentioned, the pickled oh, vegetables. That I love. Eggplant and oil. Yes. Um, sour and sweet pepper, sweet and sour peppers, agrodolce, also in um, olive oil. And, you know, those are just a few of the things that I grew up with. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, Preserves are so central to Italian cooking. They are always on the table. Wherever you go, you know, in Italy, you will find some sort of preserved food, whether it's a house-made jam or peperoncini, hot peppers in oil, or fruit mostarda, mm-hmm. um, house-made liqueurs. Mm-hmm. So this tradition of preserving really is central to Italian cooking and the Italian table. And I thought that not enough attention had been paid to it. And that was really what set me off on this book. Mm. I have to tell you, there's something extraordinary about canning because we all know that you savor the season. And there's something really beautiful about the Italian process of it because I would very happily sit down to an antipasti of everything you have in a jar right now and be completely content with a glass of wine and a loaf of bread. And as much as it lends itself to antipasti as well, the condiment factor of it, where you can pull a jar of mostarda and make that simple pork roast come alive with flavor, is really, like you said, a very inherent Italian uh, uh, process, but a tool that I think we need to adopt more for our crazy busy lives. It gives you a go-to for fabulous flavor at any time. Well, that's that's true. It really does. I, I'm thinking about some of the things I have in my fridge right now, including those really silky um, roasted sweet and sour peppers that are preserved in oil. And I, I really can't make enough of those. They just go very fast because, um, you know, you just take them out by the forkful and you serve them as a side dish to roast chicken or roast fish. Nice. Um, we had a little preserving di- um, Italy dinner last night at, at one of my favorite little restaurants in, in Alexandria, Virginia, near where I live, and we served the peppers on crostini with goat cheese. Mm. I mean, they're just so versatile, and it's true about a lot of preserves. You, you know, you can serve mostarda, which is that very spicy, sweet, um, poached fruit condiment, and that is um, something you'll find in Lombardy and Emilia-Romagna and those air in the Veneto region. But I love mostarda with cheese. So, you know, if you don't want to make the traditional bolito misto or pork roast, you can put some cheese out and a jar of mostarda, and mm. you have a lovely, you know, little antipasto. Well, of course. Um, so, yeah, the versatility is one thing that, that really makes preserving um, uh, convenient, too. Yes. I mean, you have a little bit of uh, work on the front end where you do your preserving, but then you have all of these wonderful jewel-colored preserves in um, your pantry and your mm-hmm. fridge to keep you going. No doubt. And, and I, as I said, I mean, I, I could happily stick a fork into your jar of sweet and sour roasted peppers with capers and snack accordingly and be very happy. Oh, I love this conversation. We'll take a quick break when we come back. More Preserving Italy right after this.
We're back and we're dishing Italian style. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with author of Preserving Italy, Domenica Marchetti. Let's jump into the recipes because I want to dig in. And let's start with the peppers because as you mentioned it, I had the book opened and propped to that recipe exactly. I love the, the bright color. I love that here we have the privilege of bell peppers of every variety year round. Um, But the concept of preserving in oil is an age old one. And if you would just share some of the the techniques and your tips and tricks. So the trick to preserving in oil, and this is something that um, the USDA doesn't really offer guidelines on. So uh, when I was researching and working on the book, I was very careful to be cautious about um, what I recommend for preserving in oil. It's not something that I either water bath can or pressure can because I feel like with water bath canning, um, you can't be sure that you're really sealing the can with all the oil in it. And with pressure canning, anything you pressure can, any vegetable you pressure can really turns to mush, so it just doesn't work. So when I make preserves in oil, I keep them, I, I make them, and I store them in the refrigerator. refrigerator but the process of prepping the vegetable is really what, um, what, it, what, is the, what preserves it. So if you're doing um, peppers, you roast them or grill them or broil them, and so you're sort of cooking them anyway. And then you uh, plunge them into a vinegar brine and you marinate them. And the vinegar also acts as a preservative, as does the cooking, which removes some of the moisture. And then finally, you submerge the vegetables in oil. And that, um, you know, removes any oxygen from the jar. And so your vegetables are beautifully preserved. I pop them in the fridge and, you know, they last for months, but I, I say that, but they don't last for months because people eat them so quickly. <laughs> um, for eggplant, it's a similar process, but what you, you, know, you would salt the eggplant and, and then you would remove the moisture once it's salted. Right. You plunge them in the vinegar brine, then you let them dry, and removing this moisture really makes them um, suitable for, you know, it makes them shelf-stable. Mm. For eggplant, you can preserve them just like you would the peppers, in oil, and again, keep them in the refrigerator. So yes. I, and what's nice about preserving in oil is that you've, you really have this nice silkiness to the vegetables. So mm, you beautiful. take them out of that jar, and they have a little bit of oil clinging to them, and it kind of enriches them, and it tempers the vinegar flavor from the brine. Mm. And I can't wait to make the grilled zucchini in oil, just so you know. That smoky, lovely flavor of the zucchini and then the the vinegar and the olive oil to offset. Oh, yes. Yes, I love all those assertive flavors. And, of course, zucchini is very mild. Right. So, um, you know, it takes, it, it takes on the flavors of, mm. of anything you put it with. And the, and the grilling Yummy. is that nice smoky flavor. Oh, yes, for sure. Okay, foods preserved in vinegar. I love anything agrodolce. I, I would eat shoe leather agrodolce, Domenica, <laughs> just so you know. Um, and I, both, yes, yeah. um, I love the idea of carrots and fennel in agrodolce, but I'm also a, a jardiniera, you call it, like a, a, a mixed pickled vegetable fanatic. I find it an incredible snack. I think it's wonderful alongside rich cheeses and beautiful meats on a charcuterie board. It lends itself to meat as well. And the idea of making your own classic jardinera is a far more cost-effective way than buying the bottled variety. 
Oh, for sure. And uh, I like to make jardiniere in spring and then again in fall because okay. you see all those cruciferous vegetables, you know, yes. the cauliflower. Mm. And then you can use the pearl onions or the cipollini onions, peppers, nice. green beans, all of these crunchy vegetables. And the nice thing about jardiniera is... Um, you know, you just have to cut up your vegetables. That's the only prep work that you do. As the delicious conversation continues, there's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. the frugality of Italian cooks as it applies to mostarda. There is something really wonderful about mostarda. It's an elevated mustard. It's always infused with flavor. It's a beautiful compliment because you add fruit and sweetness to the bitey, you know, bite of the mustard. I think there's nothing better than a true Italian mostarda. I agree, and the thing that strikes me about mostarda is that it seems to be sort of the antithesis of the frugal, um, you know, uh, the frugal putting up of all the preserves. Because as you probably know, I mean, so many vegetables and fruits grow beautifully in Italy, and mm-hmm. many, you know, wherever there's a patch of land, there's a garden, there's something growing in it. I mean, they don't have these big lawns. People want to use their gar- their la- grass and their gar- lawns, lawns and gardens to yes. grow things. But um, mostarda is kind of, to me, it seems much more um, a condiment from another era and yes. more like uh, something the nobility would enjoy. You know, mm. you take these whole fruits and you preserve them in a sugar syrup. It's something that takes several days. You have to poach them uh, poach whole apples or whole pears, or what I did was, um, if you can't find the sm- very small fruits, you chop them up or slice them. And I ended up slicing pears very thinly and poaching them over a process of over about two or three days. So it's time-consuming. It requires a lot of sugar. And then you have to find this esoteric ingredient, this mustard oil that is really strong, that's so strong that it's recommended that you don't handle it with your bare hands, that you should use gloves and you shouldn't open the little bottle and sniff it because it can really burn your nostrils. So it's very potent stuff. You have to get it at a special drogeria, little um, kind of shop that sells a variety of food um, uh, ingredients. And uh, so, you know, I had to search out the mustard oil to make the mostarda. It's not readily available here in the U.S., but to me, mostarda is something that is so, um, it's so classic, and it really is, um, you know, it's, it's probably Lombardy's most famous condiment. And when I was trying to decide what to include in the book, I thought, I really need to include mostarda, even if it's difficult to find the ingredients here. Because oh, but... People want to know about it. Well, of course. And a lot of people travel to Italy, and, you know, if they're adventurous, maybe they'll walk into a little drogeria and they'll ask for mustard essence, and, yes. and then they'll be able to make it. And they'll bring us some back. Exactly. By extra. There's something very uh, aspirational about mostarda to me. I mean, if you're going to make it and you've, you know, sought out the ingredients, make a big batch and give it as the ultimate 
food gift for the holiday season. You know, that, that is a pride and, and joy of a process, really. Um, and I intend to make your recipe, and I will follow up with you to tell you how it turns out. Oh, I, I'm looking Ooh, forward to that. Yeah, I really love it. Yes. And like I said, it's great with a winter roast. It's mm. also great with cheese so and, good. you know, any time of year. The book is... Uh, Really well done. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I believe it should be in every home preserver's kitchen. It is peppered with stories and luscious recipes, and you will learn a volume about Italian preserved foods, and you will be treated to the deliciousness of preserving seasonal goodness for every season. You can find Domenica Marchetti's newest cookbook release entitled Preserving Italy, available now. It is canning curing, infusing, and bottling Italian flavors and traditions. And you can learn more at domenicacooks.com. Domenica, come back soon, please. As the seasons change, we could um, preserve to savor the season, the best of, you know, what we can find. If you'll inspire us with an Italian infusion, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. I would love it. Quince in the fall. Quince in the fall. We'll look forward to it. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. I hope that I satiated your appetite and that if you love to cook and love to eat, as I know you do, you will tune in every Sunday and allow me to fill your plate. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for the hour. We learned some months ago from the author of Will It Waffle that a waffle iron doesn't have to be a single-use appliance, right? You should think of it instead of taking up precious cabinet space in your kitchen as an easy griddle that cooks things on both sides at the same time and then turns them into crispy, delicious treats. Well, especially during the summer months when you don't want to fire up the stove or the oven, it's really nice to use your appliances that give off less ambient heat, and the waffle maker is one of them. There's nothing better as well than super crispy hash browns, right? You got to love your waffle iron, but you got to love some hash browns. Well, you can use your waffle iron to make hash browns that give you crunchy bits on all exterior parts, then you get silky smooth potatoes inside, and you get all of this without having to flip the potatoes or fuss over them in a pan. So for waffle iron hash browns, you preheat the waffle iron, of course, if it has a temperature control, set it to medium. You squeeze shredded potato with a towel until it's as dry as possible, and then I like to mix in a good liberal amount of salt and pepper. And then you use a pastry brush or a paper towel to grease rather, both sides of the waffle iron with butter, and you pile the shredded potatoes into the waffle iron, and you overstuff it a little bit, and you close the lid. And about 10 minutes total later, after a couple minutes, you push the lid down a little more to compress the potatoes. You get the most beautiful golden brown all over hash browns you have ever seen. And trust me, they are delicious. I will post the recipe for waffle iron hash browns on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on my page at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope to meet you here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.